Well, good morning. For those of you that were here with us last week for Easter service, welcome back. Uh, as Pastor Mark said, my name is Matt Zelich. I'm the student life pastor here. And I don't know how smart I am, but I've certainly paid enough money to want to say I am to some degree. Um, a lot of schooling, uh, finishing up my master's, in fact, uh, this quarter, and so I should be done by June. Looking forward to that day because I want my life back a little bit, uh, but it's been so good. I, uh, I'm excited to, to teach this morning as we begin this series, Questions of a Skeptic. And, and the truth is, uh, we live in a skeptical world, and we are surrounded by skeptical people. In fact, Maybe some of you here today are feeling a little skeptical towards God, towards uh, Christianity, towards the Bible. And if that's you, I, I just want to start off by saying, uh, welcome. We're, we're glad you're here. This is a safe place to ask tough questions and at times to be skeptical. In fact, I believe that's in some ways healthy to the development of our faith. Um, but this morning, can smart people really believe the Bible? The answer is yes. Thanks for coming. I'll see you next week. <laughs> no, really, that is an important question, and you can hear the skepticism in the question. Can smart people really believe the Bible? And truthfully, no matter how you feel, there are good reasons for skepticism. Doesn't science contradict the Bible? Aren't there passages that are super barbaric and uh, misogynistic and has been used to condone slavery and horrible things in human history doesn't really seem to match up with my experiences. I haven't been possessed by a demon. I haven't seen someone get swallowed up by a fish. What do we do with this? Can smart people really believe the Bible? This morning, as we talk through that question, I want to look at, at three words in that question. Smart believe, and the Bible. We'll spend the most time on that last one. But to start off, can smart people, can smart people, intelligent people, what is intelligence? Well, intelligence is knowledge uh, and reason. Knowledge, what we know, learning new things, accumulating information, and reason, how we apply that information, what we do with it. And I want to say that being intelligent is a huge, huge factor to our developing understanding of God. A lot of times we feel like it's just, you just need faith. I disagree with that. God says uh, you need to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That mind component is us accumulating new information and reasoning through it the best way that we can. But our knowledge, our intelligence, of course, is limited. We can't know all things. You cannot gather all the information there ever has been or there ever will be. Just we're limited. And what's more, you can't reason through all of knowledge uh, with universal clarity. There are limitations to what we know, to our intelligence. What do we do with those limitations? How do we reconcile the gaps of the things we don't know? And that's where I want to move to this other idea of belief. What are the images 
of belief that come to mind? What is it that you think of? Belief um, is, is understanding uh, with our limitations that we can't know everything, but it's an acceptance of something to be true. So when you believe in something, you are accepting it to be true. It's, it's faith and trust in someone or something. We all have to invest a level of belief in anything. That's just how it works. And so I feel like this is, this is important to understand because uh, it's a mix of both, of, with, with being intelligent and yet investing some trust, some belief, leaving room for mystery. Brene Brown has this incredible quote that I love. She says, I don't trust a theologian who dismisses the beauty of science, but I can't trust a scientist who doesn't believe in the power of mystery. Now, what do I mean by mystery? Why is this significant? Because I believe that when we really reflect on our existence, on, on our lives, that when you look up to the stars and you imagine this great big world and you, and you can feel the, small, the smallness of your existence and you imagine what's out there, the question becomes, what, what, is, what is moving us? What is directing us? What is it that, that has put this all into motion? How did we arrive here? And the mystery behind that allows us to explore this question with a little more depth. So, as we move through to the Bible, one of the things that I want us to uh, understand is this question is unique. Can smart people believe the Bible? It is significantly different than can smart people believe in God. That's not the question we're wrestling with today. I can't use the Bible to prove God's existence to you. If you don't believe in God, uh, then the Bible is rubbish to you. But... A good understanding, a, a healthy understanding of the Bible begins with a belief that a God exists and this God is somehow trying to communicate with creation. That is where we begin. Now, maybe the reason that you're skeptical about God's existence is because of the Bible. Maybe you read certain things and you think like, what am I supposed to do with that? Can this, this doesn't make sense. I don't know. And so there is where we begin. Um, the Bible is not a book. It is a library. Now, that can be confusing because it, it reads like a book. I mean, we have it in one book. We talk about it as a book, but it's not. It's a collection of writings. And this collection of, of writings um, allows us to approach the Bible uh, with, with an important understanding. See, when you approach a book... It's, uh, it's a little bit different. Your expectations are different than how you'd approach a library. With a book, you've got one author, one genre, one uh, agenda, whatever that is. With a library, a library is, is dynamic. There is diversity of, of different authors and, and different cultures and different times. And so our, our expectations change a little bit. And so one of the things that I find important that, that, we, that we see from the very beginning is that with this, this collection of writings, this collection of work written by different authors, written in different times, in different cultures, in different contexts, 
in different languages all refer to the same God moving and working through their lives to advance creation forward. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 3. Unfortunately, we do not have the slides up on the screen. You can always download the Bible app, carry the Bible with you everywhere you go. Uh, But go to Ezekiel chapter 3 because I want to talk about this idea of moving creation forward and and what I mean by that. A lot of times I feel like the, the feeling, the association with God is moving creation forward is something like, okay, he's looking down, he sees the world, and he's really not happy with it. He's like, this these people are terrible, they're awful. And so he gets on his megaphone and he's yelling down, you people are terrible, do better. And it's like in that way, eventually, if the people can just come to their senses, okay, 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 they'll do it, and then, and then they'll get better. That's advancing creation forward somehow. But, but in Ezekiel chapter three, there's a different idea of what God's word, his message is doing in our lives and how we respond to it. Ezekiel is a prophet. And the prophet's responsibility was to communicate the message of God to the people. So God speaks to a prophet, and this prophet then uh, communicates that message to everyone else. And during this time, uh, this people, the people of God, are displaced. They're in exile. They're not home. And one of the greatest reasons for this is explained in the text is that they're rebellious. They're just, they won't listen to God. They won't do things the way they're supposed to. Ah, they just keep running, running, running away. And eventually that led them to uh, be displaced from their home. So there are people in need of of hope. There are people in need of direction. There are people in need of what it looks like to move forward. And Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1, says this. Ezekiel speaking, The voice of God said to me, Son of man, eat what I am giving you. Eat this scroll. Then go and give its message to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Fill your stomach with this, he said. And when I ate it, it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said, son of man, go to the people of Israel. Give them my message. For Ezekiel, this word of God that comes from this divine force that is wanting to move them forward comes to him, and his reaction to it, his response is that this is something that is good. This is something that, that is pleasant. It tastes sweet. And in turn, by delivering that message to the people, they too will see and experience and taste the sweetness of God's word, of God's communication moving them forward. Now, here's another piece to this that's a little bit challenging to navigate. The Bible is both a human and divine work. The Bible is both a human and divine work. What do I mean by that? Well, Liberals would maybe say, you need to highlight the human side of it. It's a bunch of stories from people long ago trying to figure out God. They make up a bunch of stuff that makes sense to them at the time. And it's not really beneficial for us today. But if you want to know, if you want to learn, you can always go back and read them. And it'll help you understand what people used to think about God. 
And conservatives would highlight the other side, divine. It is, it is God's truth. It is rained down from heaven. It is infallible and errant. You can't touch it or do anything with it because it's so perfect. And truthfully, a healthy relationship with the Bible is somewhere in between those two. We can't be afraid of the human side of Scripture. In fact, to think that like, the Bible just rained down to us isn't even how God works in the Bible. He uses creation. He partners with people to do his work. Now, uh, there came a point in time where I really struggled with this, uh, and this was in college. And I knew I wanted to go into ministry since I was in seventh grade. I loved my youth group. I was super connected. So I said, I'm going to do this forever. And uh, that was basically the development of my faith through high school, just going to youth group a lot. And you go to camp, and yay, Jesus, everything's great. Uh, and maybe one time I'll get to say something about all that stuff. Well, I go to college, uh, and, and I instantly uh, select my major for uh, Bible and religion. And I, in this thought process, I'm like, okay, I want to learn more about Scripture. I want to learn more about the Bible, and I'll be able to teach it. Well, one of the first things I had to do uh, into, into some of the upper-level credits that I was taking. So late into my sophomore year, early junior year, I took a class where we worked through some, uh, some texts of the Old Testament, starting with Genesis. And, uh, and my experience with the Bible, it's ironic because I wanted to go be a pastor, but I didn't read the Bible that often. I, just, I knew some of the stories about Jesus and whatever they talked about in church, but I didn't sit down, I didn't really read through it, I didn't wrestle through it, and so there's a lot that I didn't know. And so early on in this assignment, we had to read through the book of Genesis. And I was excited, I'm like, yes, I'm gonna read through Genesis. I can't wait, I love that book, I think. I don't know, I'll find out. And so I'm like reading through it, and I come to this point in the story um, that hits me different than, than it ever had before, or maybe it was even the first time I'd really ever encountered it. And it's the story of, of a man named Abraham. And uh, Abraham takes off in the story of Genesis in chapter 12, and God says to Abraham, hey, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to I make a deal. I want to bless you, and I want to make you into a great nation. And the reason for that is that you're going to be a community that points people to me. I want to reclaim my creation. That sounds wonderful. How nice. And so as the story continues, eventually God says to Abraham, hey, you know how you have that son, Isaac? Yes. Thanks, God. You're great. Yeah, I would like for you to sacrifice that son. Now, when I read this, I like had what I call a Lion King moment. And by that, what I mean is my experience with the Bible was like, I loved it. I was happy. Me and my Bible just prancing in the pride lands. And all of a sudden, I, I read this verse, and now... There's a herd of buffalo stampeding down the canyon, and they swoop Mufasa right in front of my face, away from me, and he's gone. And I don't know what to do, so I just kind of run away. I did not know what to do with this passage. I was terrified. I thought, this is God? You've got to be kidding me. God asks Abraham to kill his son? What? How, how, how have we never talked about this? How have we, what, how is everybody else just like, brushing that under the rug, like, oh, and then we just skip this part and keep moving to Jesus, right? Like, that's what happened. That was my faith. And I was so frustrated when I finally found this, and it led to this horrible, horrible crisis of faith. 
Because when I read that verse, I thought, this is backwards. This is barbaric. This is the God that like, we claim to, is loving and, and is so great. And late into that sophomore, early junior year, I wrestled to the point that I started second-guessing my faith, and I stopped believing in the Bible, and I stopped believing in God, because this doesn't make sense to me. And my rationale for at least a year was, yeah, I think Christians are kind of stupid if they believe in this God. That was my experience. And it was terrifying, because like, I had spent so much time, so many years prepping for ministry, and all of a sudden, like, now I don't believe in God. Whoops, I don't know what to do with that. Like, so I was really, really scared, and I kept asking questions, but I was really, really skeptical. I didn't know what to do with that. Here's a part that's important to this. When you read, if you ever go to Genesis, we're not going to look at that story particularly today. I encourage you to do so. Because when you go and you read that story, when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Abraham goes for it. He's like not shocked. He's not confused. He, he goes for it. He, he does what God says. Now, that's important for this reason, that there was an understanding of God, the gods, in this ancient culture. For this ancient culture, for Abraham and for the people that he lived around, the belief was, okay, we are here and there are gods, lots of them, and they control a lot of different things. And they control a lot of things that we need, like food and rain and all that good stuff. And so if we are good, those gods will like be nice to us and give us some of that stuff. And if we don't get that stuff, it's a sign that they're, they're really angry. And in order to appease their anger, we had to sacrifice something, like maybe our child. And so they would do that. That was what they believed is like, that's how you get the gods to not be angry with you. And so the story in Genesis starts the same way the story about the gods started, with, with God saying, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, what's different about the story is how it ends. Because as Abraham is on his way, as he's tying up his son, as he pulls out the knife, he's ready to go, he stopped. And the message is, Abraham, you don't have to sacrifice your son. In fact, here's a ram, I'll provide the sacrifice for you. This was revolutionary concepts for the people at the time. Now, for us, we're a little bit past that line in the story. And so we look back and we think, what? But for them, if we get in their, their minds, if we put ourselves in that context, this God is different than the other gods. This God doesn't want us to kill our son. This God, in fact, will provide the sacrifice for us. Why would he do that? Why would the gods do that? What do they care about us for? They're, they're more powerful than us. Why do, they, why do they care? Why would he do such a thing? And so we have to understand what it's like for the people in the stories that we read. God is working through the mess of dysfunctional culture. So Abraham is living in a dysfunctional culture dysfunctional culture. Their ideas about God are skewed. They're not pretty. And God works in the lives of someone in that culture 
to help them awaken to a new way of doing things, a new culture. God is moving his creation forward. And there's a line. There's a line we're going to get to in just a second, but you read in Genesis, God says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your one and only son whom you love. I feel like I've heard that at another part in the Bible. And that's because of this next point. The Bible is a story. The Bible is a story. A lot of times we open it, we read it as like segregated stories that this one will teach you about humility, this one will teach you about pride, yada, yada, yada. But really, the Bible is is an ongoing story, one harmonious story that talks about uh, the, the coming of Jesus, which we'll get to. So the next question, how do we use the Bible? An important piece to know is that someone wrote something down. That's obvious, I know, but think about it. Why do we have the scriptures that we have? Because someone took the time to write something down. Something was so important to them, something had value to them, they had this experience that had to be shared that they took the time to write it down and to pass it along to other people. Now that person, is a person, it's a human being. They have a life, uh, they, they, had, they made mistakes, they lived in culture and society, and they thought certain ways at that time. And so what do we do with that? Uh, I, I had this relationship with the Bible throughout high school, and I kind of prided myself on it, but looking back, I'm like, huh, that's interesting, because for me, the Bible was like the end-all, be-all truth about everything. It's like the perfect science book, it's the perfect history book, and if it said it, it happened just as it said it, boom, no argument. And that's how I believed the Bible, and that's how I used the Bible. And that led to a lot of frustration and tensions when conversations with other people. And I kind of felt like my relationship with the Bible was this. It's kind of like my little brother. Like, I love him to death, but my little brother would get beat up by the bullies after school every single day. And then big brother comes in and like, hey, fins off the bullies. Hey, don't you pick on my little brother. And there's a couple times that I felt like proud of that. Like I'm a hero. Yeah, I came in, defended the Bible. But after a while, I felt like, oh, come on, you need me again? Like I wish, I love you, but I wish you just put up your fist and throw a couple punches yourself because I'm tired of sitting here and defending you time and time again. Why can't you speak for yourself? But I realized that I was using the Bible in the wrong way. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible is not intended as a science textbook. It's not its purpose. The Bible is not intended as a history book. That's not its purpose. Now, it does have elements of science and elements of history in it, but that is not its purpose. And if you don't use the Bible according to its purpose, you're going to misunderstand it and it's gonna be very difficult. It's like trying to read Harry Potter to learn how to practice magic. You'd be like, you'd be really frustrated at the end of it. You're like, I don't, it didn't work. And the author would say to you, yeah, you missed the point. That's not what I was trying to do. The Bible is full of different authors who have a purpose, who have a point. And that point is to help you understand more about God. It's a growing consciousness of his movement and getting us to go forward and his interaction with us, his creation. Now, I wouldn't read the Bible today if it was just a bunch of like stories about other people's lives. Because I think that's how we think about the Bible sometimes. Oh, it's just like that story about Abraham, yay, good lesson there, that story about Noah, whatever it is. Like, 
if we were just reading a collection of stories about other people's lives, the question would be like, why are you doing that? Like, I don't read the Iliad or the Odyssey every night before I go to bed because why do I care about those stories to the point that it affects every single moment of my day? But what's important to understand is that when we look at the Bible, here's the piece to it. It's not just their story. It's our story. If the Bible doesn't reach you where you are in life, it doesn't have a lot of value. But what I believe, what I've experienced, is that the Bible does speak to me in my life here and now. It's like, have you ever had this moment where you're struggling, you've gone through this breakup or your friendship's ending or whatever it is, you, you're just having a really, really difficult time, and you open up the Bible and you read this story, and somehow that story is talking about exactly what you are going through. And you read it like you're really excited because, oh my gosh, I can't, like this is exactly what I'm going through. And it has this message that gives you hope, that moves you forward, that helps you out, that, that inspires you. And you say, okay, like, wow, I can do that. That is moving you forward into something better. It's like when you, when you have the words, God's words, his truth on your lips, it's like that moment where you understand this is sweet like honey. That is our relationship with the Bible. Now, why do we read the Bible um, is kind of the next question. Because there's some good things in it, but ultimately, why are we tying ourselves to this book for so long? The shorter answer is this, because Jesus did. As Christians, we want to be like Jesus. It is our goal to have the same relationship with the Bible that Jesus did. And Jesus was obsessed with the Bible. He, he taught the Bible. He quoted the Bible. He read the Bible. He was, he was always thinking about how those words transformed the lives of those around him. It's funny because uh, if you go to John chapter 5, verse 39, I'll give you a chance to go there. We're going to look at this passage. But Jesus saw himself in the storyline of the Bible. So he wasn't just a guy that's like, I like to use these, these scriptures. They're pretty helpful. This is a guy that saw himself in the story. And in fact, the whole story up until the point of his life was leading up to him. It says this in John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders who love the Bible. They're Bible experts. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Jesus is saying, this is all pointing to me. This is how you understand the Bible, through the filter, through the lens of me, Jesus he goes on to say in verse 45, yet it isn't I who accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you have put your hopes. It was believed that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. So these very scriptures, the author of, of the scriptures that they love to read, says this in verse 46. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me for Jesus Everything Moses wrote in the first five books of the Bible, so many years before Jesus was ever on the earth, 
was about Jesus. It's a story that continues and goes through history about how God is moving us forward. Now, here's the last verse that I want to read this morning. It's, it's the next chapter, John chapter 6, verses 66 through 68. And I feel like this verse kind of summarizes my relationship with the Bible, even now, to this day. Like, this, this is my relationship with the Bible right here. Um, right after this event uh, that we just read, there's a bunch of people that are following Jesus. There are crowds, people who are like, this guy's amazing. Let's follow him. Let's learn from him. And so as the crowds grow, he starts to like throw out like harder teachings, things that are difficult to understand. And at one point, he says to everybody, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. Now, when people heard this, they thought, what a weirdo. <laughs> what is he talking about? And they left. They're like, I don't get that. That sounds odd. I'm out. And so, um, so Jesus kind of has a moment uh, with his disciples. And they say to him, like, this is a really hard teaching to understand. They're just upfront about it. This is really difficult. I don't get it. And Jesus asks them, are you offended? Are you offended by what I've said? Because if you truly knew what I was saying, if you truly knew who I was, you would, you would be awakened. Your eyes would be opened. And then it says this in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 68. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. Now, this is my final point. There are many times that I read the Bible, even still to this day, and I'm like, what? I don't know what to do with that. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm just at a loss for words. And part of, part of what I've learned to do is to, before I freak out when I read those verses, is to step back and be like, okay, hold on. There's a context. There's a culture. There's an author. There's an audience. Some of, those pe- some of those pieces might help me understand this verse that's challenging me a little bit better. But ultimately, when I see those difficult passages, when I don't know what to do with them, when I'm tempted to leave, to walk away, to be like, this book is not for smart people, I'm reminded of, of this idea that this book has in my life given me words that have allowed me to live to a degree I never imagined. Where else would I go? I mean, yeah, I, there's times that I want to leave. Where else would I go? What else has the words of life? The Bible has been used and abused in history to do some bad things. We cannot ignore that part of our history. It's there. We just have to be real about it. But it has also been one of the most contributing factors to the development, to the advancement of our human race. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, um, there's a passage that says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one under Christ Jesus. Scholars would say this is the first recorded instance of full equality in human history. It's speaking 
to a culture, to a people that at the time needed the words of life to move them forward. And when they got them, those words were sweet as honey and it progressed them to a new level. We are still understanding and awakening our consciousness to the reality of God. And it's a journey. And how do we do that? How do we understand what God is doing in our lives? I believe it is through our faith in Jesus, and that faith in Jesus tells us that we need to have faith in the Bible. We don't worship the Bible, we worship Jesus. But the Bible is, is the thing that allows us to understand him and know him and experience him and learn and grow. So as the band comes back up for our final song of, of worship, uh, questions of a skeptic. Can smart people really believe the Bible? I think so. I do. But I think a better question is, what does it take for you to experience these words in a transformative way? If you don't ever have that experience, you will always be wrestling with this question. Can smart people really believe the Bible? But when you see these aren't just their stories, they're, they're our stories, they're your stories. You are in the pages of the Bible that you open. It allows us to experience this forward motion that God has ordained. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it has traveled across time and culture to different audiences, to um, different contexts and different languages. It is a book that has spread across the world. And God, we have to face the reality of that. It is in the hands of so many people. We have to ask why, how did it, how did it get there? Why is it that we still talk about it today? Why is it moved across continent and country? What is it doing that it has that power to keep moving us forward? And God, what does it take for us, each and every one here, to experience that transformation in a personal way, that we live the truth of your word, and it to us is sweet as honey. Show us, teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.